This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Mark, chapter number two, is where we're going to be at this morning, Mark 2. A week from tomorrow, actually, I'm sorry, a week from today kicks off our fall revival services, and so we are uh, have a, just a few nights that we're gathering together uh, to specifically pray and ask God for revival and talk about what revival looks like uh, in our church family, and so I would encourage you to put that on your calendar, plan on being a part of that, and so uh, today we're taking a look at how we can prepare for revival. We'll find that in Mark chapter number two. Uh, we're going to start at verse number 13 this morning. If you've never been part of our fall revival services, I'd greatly encourage you to come. Uh, it won't be a long service, maybe an hour or so in length, uh, but I would uh, greatly encourage you to do that. It's just going to be a time of prayer together as a church family uh, and a, a short message from the Bible and a clear Bible application each night. And so uh, put that on your calendar, plan on being a part of that. It kicks off next Sunday night at 5 p.m. Uh, and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we'll be meeting at 7 p.m. Uh, as well. Mark chapter 2, we're going to start in verse number 13. We find here uh, Jesus Christ and uh, his disciples are, are going about and... Um, uh, let me see, Mark chapter 2, verse number, it says Mark chapter 2, verse number 13, but that's not what I'm looking for. Don't you hate it when that happens? Oh, uh, there, there's where we, um, okay, good. Yeah, okay, I found it. Uh, ver, uh, I was, it's actually verse number 15. Sorry about that. Uh, Mark chapter 2, verse number 15. I had a minor heart attack. Okay, uh, that, that just happened like, oh no, this is not good at all. Uh, sometimes I've done that before. I've grabbed the wrong notes for the message that I was supposed to preach that day and everyone's confused by that. I've had times where I forgot my Bible. Just know this, if a pastor ever stands to preach without a Bible and he doesn't actually quote scripture, it's not good, okay? Uh, so we need to talk about the Bible from the Bible and so I'm glad I found my place this morning. Mark chapter two, starting in verse number 15. It came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples for there were many that followed him. And the scribes and Pharisees saw him eat with publicans and sinners. They said unto his disciples, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? And Jesus had heard that. He said unto them, they that are whole have no need for a physician, but they that are sick came not to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners to repentance. Uh, in this case here, it's important to understand context what Jesus is talking about here. They said, hey, Jesus is eating with all these sinners and he's left out all the religious people. And Jesus says, I didn't come to hang out with religious people. I came to spend time with sinners. And here's the key, to call them to repentance. Sometimes carnal Christians uh, make excuses for their lifestyle by this passage of scripture. Uh, they'll hang out with people who hate God, who curse God's name, uh, who drink, uh, who are sexually immoral. And they'll say, well, Jesus hung out with publicans and sinners too. Yes, but Jesus called them to repentance from their lifestyle. Jesus never condoned their activity. Jesus never took part in their activity. Uh, Jesus never joined in to the crowd here. He always kept himself distinct and he always called them to repentance. So if you wanna have unsaved people in your house, I would highly, highly encourage you to spend as much time as you can with people that don't know Jesus for the purpose of calling them to repentance. Uh, that's really important, to get people to follow Jesus and to know the Jesus that uh, you and I know. If you don't know Jesus, hang on, we're gonna get there in just a second. Verse number 17, when Jesus heard, it, uh, I'm sorry, verse number 18, when the disciples of John and the Pharisees used to fast, and they come and say, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but the disciples fast not? 
Jesus said unto them, can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them and then they shall fast in those days. No man soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that be filled up taketh away from the old and is rent and made worse. No man putteth new wine in old bottles, else the wine doth burst the bottles and the wine is spilled and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put into new bottles. The Pharisees and scribes were confused. They said, hey, uh, other people are fasting, but your disciples never fast. We never see them fast. And Jesus says, their time for fasting is coming when I'm gone. And today we're taking a look at uh, what it means to fast for revival. Uh, I don't know about you or what part of the uh, country that you grew up in or where you grew up, uh, but I remember in Kentucky, we used to have revivals every single summer. Summer Every summer was summer revival. Uh, sometimes they would get uh, big tents that they would rent and put them outside. It was sweltering hot in the middle of July uh, in the south and uh, mosquitoes everywhere and these lights. Uh, Revivals were a big deal because they generally bring a band in from out of town and uh, the band would play, uh, again, Kentucky, bluegrass, redneck music uh, and they'd play for, it seemed like an hour. Then there was a preacher that would get up and he would preach for an hour and he would bring another preacher on and he would preach for an hour like three hours in sweltering heat and a a tent out there. And I remember as a kid, I hate revival. I'll just be honest. It was not fun for me. I did not enjoy it. I got eaten up by mosquitoes. Uh, I, I wanted to leave, but my parents wouldn't let me, sweating like crazy. And I just remember lots of loud screaming, preaching, uh, and things like that. So depending on the word revival has a connotation depending on where you come from. It's important to understand what does the Bible say about revival and what does it mean to be revived from a biblical perspective. It's important to define terms. We're praying that God would send revival spirit to our church family. We cannot schedule revival, uh, so we can't say that we're going to have a fall revival. We don't know that revival will take place. Uh, what we can is do is we can schedule revival services, uh, expecting, asking God, praying for a God to send a spirit of revival. You couldn't create a revival any more than you could create a rain festival and pick a day on a calendar to schedule a rain festival, and we're all going to get together in our rain boots and our raincoats and go out and enjoy the rain. You can't schedule that. It just happens when it happens. By the same token, we can't schedule revival just because we threw a couple of arbitrary dates on a calendar and we're just expecting God's spirit to show up. So what is revival? How can we prepare ourselves, our spirit, our church for revival? And then what takes place after revival comes? What are the results of revival? Uh, First of all, a good definition that I ran across in my studies here of what is revival. It's the sovereign activity of God whereby he renews his people individually and corporately in vigor affecting both sincerity of belief and quality of behavior. I think it's a really solid definition for revival. We see revival take place throughout the Bible. Uh, We find a group of people, uh, the children of Israel, who had lost their faith in God, and then uh, they found the scrolls in the temple, and then revival took place, and they came back to a right relationship with God. Really, if you read the Old Testament, it's it's a revival and a falling away, a revival and a falling away. It's the entire story of the Old Testament. We've seen revival take place in, in history uh, where churches got on fire for God and they began to pray and beg God for his spirit and uh, people began to preach hard about sin and people became convicted of sin and they turned from their sin and God moved in a mighty way, in a special way. We've seen revival take place in churches where churches uh, started off small, but they began to grow and God began to bless the work that they had done again and again and again. But the revival that we're talking about this morning is a personal revival. 
I think most of us, if we walk with Jesus for any period of time, there's a time in our life where we really got on fire for God, where we begin to read and pray and, and study the Bible and, and ask God for big things and see God answer prayer and it would increase our faith and our faith would swell and we begin to be very bold about sharing our faith. We became really excited and zealous about the things of God. Uh, man, maybe you had a journal that you were writing in. Maybe you had a passage of scripture that you were studying. Maybe you pull out that Bible that you had during that period of time. It's just marked up with, with writings and highlights and, and tear stains and everything else. You go, oh, I remember that time when I was so on fire for God. That's what takes place when revival happens in our own hearts. But oftentimes, the cares of the world get in the way. Things begin to happen, and we begin to slip a little bit. It starts with maybe our Bible reading or our church attendance or our prayer life or just our, our boldness for Christ begins to slip a little bit. And then we wake up one day having drifted so far away from that place, and we go, oh, I don't really know how I got here. But revival says, I want to get back there. I want God to move again in my life and my spirit and bring me back to that right relationship with him. If there's something wrong in my life, I wanna make it right. If there's something that's hindering me in my walk with Christ, I wanna get rid of it. I wanna do what the Bible says and lay aside every weight and sin that does so easily keep me back and hold me down from being who God wants me to be. That's what happens when revival takes place. The awesome thing about revival is historically revival is contagious. It gets passed on. And I'm praying that throughout this process of preparing for revival, I pray that revival would take place in your own heart. I've been, I had it on my prayer list every single day for probably the last three months. Uh, we as men have been gathering together at 7 a.m. on Saturday mornings to pray that God would send a spirit of revival to our church. But we pray that it would happen with us first, us individually. It's easy for us to say, God, send revival to my church. God, bless Huikala. God, do something at Huikala that you've never done before. God, your hand of favor, blessing be upon Huikala. But I think I'm good. Really easy to say that. It's a lot more difficult when we flip that and say, God, would you start something in me that is so on fire, so contagious, so flammable that it would set my church on fire for the cause of Christ? That's what happens when a revival gets hold of us. Now, it's important to understand the definition here, the sovereign act whereby God renews his people. Revival is geared towards taking those who have slipped, who have backslidden, who have walked away from their faith or walked away from God in some sense and bringing them back to a right relationship with God. The important thing to understand about revival is you cannot be revived if you are dead. You can't. And the Bible says that every person on planet Earth is born spiritually dead. But you can look at this when we study through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter two tells us we were dead before in our trespasses and sin, but Jesus Christ has made us alive together with him. You see, you and I were born physically alive, but spiritually dead. And the only way that we can have our spirit made alive is through Jesus Christ. You see, we were born into sin and our sin has killed our spirit, our connection that we had with God so that we're born spiritually dead. The Bible says the Bible really won't even make sense to the unsaved man because he's spiritually dead and the Bible is a spiritually discerned book. And so you might be sitting here today and, and the songs that we sang this morning might not have really made a lot of sense to you. You might be hearing this idea of revival or, or fasting or things like that. It might not make a lot of sense to you. And so I would encourage you that if you don't know for sure that you're a child of God, don't leave here today until you're sure that you're one of his people because you're not automatically born into the family of God. You're automatically born into sin and your sin has separated you from a holy God. And there's a price that you have to pay for your sin. 
You see, sin isn't all fun and games. There comes a day where you must pay for your sins. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. That every single person will stand before a holy God one day and give an account for their life. And God doesn't have a big scale up in heaven where he puts your good stuff on one side and your bad stuff on the other and weighs it out to figure out whether you go to heaven or hell. That's determined before you ever take your last breath because Jesus came to pay the price for you. The price of your sin was paid for by Jesus Christ who lived a perfectly sinless life, who died on the cross to pay for my sin and pay for yours. The Bible says in Romans chapter five, verse number eight, but God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus died in my place so that I don't have to pay for my own sin, but he paid the price for me. That's why we sing a song sometimes that says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. He's paid for my sin, but you must receive that payment. You must accept the gift of eternal life. You have to choose to make Jesus Christ your savior. We sometimes refer to that as being saved. It's what the Bible says. We put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and savior. We can be saved, saved from hell, saved from the wrath and punishment of God saved from a purposeless life, saved from going through this life alone, we can be saved. Jesus also says in John chapter three, it's called being born again. We put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are born again into the family of God. And Jesus says something critical in John chapter three, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Do you know for sure that you're saved? Has there been a time, a date, and a place where you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? If not, friend, you're not going to heaven. That's not because this church didn't deem you good enough to go to heaven. It's because God set a standard and all of us met it. There's no church that could save you. There's no baptism that could save you, no religious act that could take you to heaven. It's one person and one person alone, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Are you saved? If so, the question we're asking ourselves today do we need revival? You don't know for sure that you're saved? Become alive today. That spiritual part of you that is dead can be made alive today by your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I would encourage you to do that. For those of us that are children of God, I would encourage you to take a look at these prerequisites that we find from Scripture for revival. Now, this is not a list that I put together uh, myself. This is not some things that I thought of that we need to do to bring revival. These are biblical principles that God's people have used throughout the Bible to see revival. First of all, God's people long for renewal. You see, you and I will never seek revival, we'll never pray for revival, we'll never desire revival if we're good. And so often... We just say, I'm good. But revival begins with an idea that I'm lacking. I haven't yet arrived. I'm not good. There's some things in me that need to change. There's some unhealthy desires that I have, some unhealthy attractions that I have to the things of this world. So many things that are keeping me from a right relationship with Christ and I want to be renewed. Next we see God's people must repent. If you seek to be a Christian who walks with Jesus, you will have to be a professional repenter. You have to become really, really good at it. The word repent means to change a change of mind, which results in a change of heart, which results in a change of action. I realize the things that I'm doing are not right. In my heart, I truly desire to change and my actions will change because of this truth that God has impressed upon my heart. 
That's what repentance looks like. And God's people must be willing and ready to repent. Next, God's people experience a new awareness of sin. We live in a society today that has normalized sin. Just not a big deal anymore. And if you think that sin's a big deal, you're probably a a prude. Uh, You're probably a... um, somebody who doesn't like to have fun, you're probably a Republican, you're probably uh, on the, the right, you're probably all these things, you probably voted for so-and-so, the life. all those things. If you believe just what the Bible says, you're automatically in your own category of, of being different. We live in a society that's normalized sin. Um, I read a um, article this past week, greatly, greatly grieved me. It's talking about how Teen Vogue, uh, the magazine Teen Vogue, uh, had sent out a series of uh, Snapchat snaps via social media to teenagers to tell them how to get an abortion without their parents finding out. And if you're not familiar with chat, Snapchat, the whole purpose of it is privacy and so you can delete stuff and nobody ever finds it again and stuff like that. And so we have media that's communicating with minors telling them how to get an abortion without their parents finding out. And here's the thing. Did anybody get upset about that? Nobody that I talked to was really incensed about that. I never saw it on the news. I never saw it, uh, people talking about it because we just normalized it. And the idea was that even children deserve a right to their own body. And it's just like, stop, time out. We've not only normalized the, the murder of children, now we're normalizing the murder of children amongst minors and so their parents won't find out. We live in a society where my kids can't get Tylenol unless somebody from the school calls me and asks me if it's okay to give my kid Tylenol, but my child can go and get an abortion and the state pays for it and nobody ever has to let me know that. That's a problem, but we've normalized it in our society. It's not a big deal. But when revival takes place with the people of God, we say, whoa, sin's a big deal. My foul language that I use isn't just a bad habit that I have. It's an affront on a holy God who's given his only son for my sins and I can't, I can't be comfortable with that anymore. My pornography is not just a bad habit that I have, it's an affront against God. My adulterous thoughts that I have about that person in my office is not just a bad habit or I need to change the way I think or I haven't ever acted on it. No, God hates sin and I hate my sin too. It's a new awareness of my sinful condition and oftentimes when revival begins to take place, People will begin to look to point out the the sin in other people. That's not revival. Revival starts with the person in the mirror. You see, all of us, we could pass out a list of sin this morning of things that the Bible preaches against you. You say, yeah, I know somebody that does that. I know a guy at work that this is totally him. And some of us have sat in services before and go, oh, man, I wish my coworker could have heard this message this morning. I think that would have really helped him to be a better, uh, better guy, you know? I wish my wife was here today. I'm gonna send her the podcast this week and have her listen. She really needs to hear that. Revival says, nobody needs it, I need it. I've been praying for revival in my own life, that God would would work and move in a way in my life that make me a little bit uncomfortable with the status quo. Next, God's people submit to humility. Again, pride is what keeps us from God. The Bible says, God resisteth the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Next, God's people are revived through God's initiative. God chooses to send revival amongst his people and rekindle the spirit of revival and send the working and moving amongst God's people in a special, unique way. What are the results that we find in scripture of revival? God's people experience inward change. God's people live obedient lives. You see, it's easy to change on the outside. It's very difficult to change on the inside. 
I can change the clothes that I wear. I can get a different haircut. I can, uh, I can go uh, lay out and get a, get a tan. It's easy to change the things on the outside. It's easy to change the things on the surface. Very difficult to change the heart. Revival heads for the heart because here's the thing. Any true lasting change in your life and mind begins on the inside by the work of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit begins his work in here, things on the outside will have to change. If God is at work in my life, I cannot be angry all the time with other people. It just doesn't work that way. If God is at work in my life with this burning in my soul to know him more, to walk with him more, to please him more, my outward sin will automatically care for itself because of the changes taking place on the inside. And revival shoots for the heart. It results in obedient lives. People are passionate about God's work. People are generous in their giving. People delight in worshiping God. And God's people are joyful. I don't know about you, but I want revival. I really do. The things that I see on this list, I think to myself, if those things took place just in my own life, if those things just took place between me and my wife, if those things could take place between me and my wife and my kids, what would happen? How would my, my home change? It'd be huge. But if it could spread to another person's home here in this room, and then another and another, what would happen? What would happen if after we dismissed on Sunday, people didn't just grab a cookie and bolt it for the sidewalk, but they were stayed over here with their arm around somebody praying with them? What would happen? What would happen if people in our church just got together over at each other's house during the week, not for anything but other than just prayer? Hey, can I come by your house and pray this week? I think I could really use some encouragement in prayer. What would happen? Oh, man, it would be something that you and I cannot even fathom with our teeny-weeny little brains. And that is a spirit of revival. And here's the thing. You don't need any permission from anybody to begin revival in your own life. Feel free to start anytime. You don't have to wait until next Sunday night to pray for revival that it would come to our church. Start tonight. Start today. Start this afternoon. One of the things that we find throughout Scripture that brings God's spirit God's blessing, God's favor in a unique way like nothing else is the spiritual practice of fasting. Now, some people have never fasted before, and that's okay. We're gonna talk about what it is and what it isn't today. Uh, for me, I, I've never in my entire life, I've gone to church my entire life, I'd never heard a pastor preach an entire message on fasting before. Uh, when, when we started Who We Call, we had about a six or eight-week series where we talked about fasting. Today, we're gonna take a look at fasting and the spiritual discipline of it. You say, well, I don't really fast. Jesus expects you to fast. Jesus, when he was talking to the Pharisees, and he says, hey, these guys do it wrong, but he was talking to his apostles, and he said, when you pray, here's how you pray. Go in your closet. Don't let anybody see you. The Pharisees out here, they got their reward. They're praying in front of everybody. But when you pray, go in your closet and pray. And so we, we pray in private. When you give, don't make a big deal out of it. Give so that the left hand doesn't even know what the right hand is doing. Uh, it doesn't mean that you, you should uh, necessarily not fill out a giving envelope or not give by check or only pay by cash or uh, I'm not gonna give in public because that would violate the scriptures. He's saying don't make a big deal about it. Hey, everybody, just wanna let you know I got a check for a thousand bucks I'm dropping in the offering basket today. How about that, huh? Praise the Lord. You wanna praise the Lord? We're gonna put a thousand dollars in today. You know, you know what Jesus said? He has his reward. Let everybody clap for him because that's what he wants but God is not pleased by that. So when you give, here's how you give. When you pray, here's how you pray. And he goes on to say, when you fast, here's how you fast. 
Now, again, it's important to define terms as we look at this. The definition of fasting is eating sparingly or abstaining from food altogether, either from necessity or desire. Now, fasting in and of itself is not a Christian discipline. It only becomes a spiritual discipline for us when we attach it with uh, intense prayer, intense focus upon God, focus upon God's word. And in this case here, the application today is spirit of revival. Uh, sometimes when you get medical tests, they'll say, you can't eat anything after midnight and don't eat until after the test. That's a fasting period. You go in to get your blood drawn. They say, have you fasted for the last eight hours? Not a spiritual thing, it's a medical thing. Uh, lately in, in dieting and nutrition, it's been become increasingly popular to do intermittent fasting where you uh, only eat six hours out of the day and you fast for 18 hours throughout the day. That's not a spiritual thing. That might be a medical or a, a fitness type of thing that you do. That's not spiritual fasting. Spiritual fasting is in its own category. Spiritual fasting entails reducing the intake of food and replacing these activities with the exercise of prayer and preoccupation with spiritual concerns. The New Testament word, which is translated fasting, literally means one who has not eaten or one who is empty. The idea of fasting is this. I'm not going to eat because I'm going to give myself over to prayer. I'm gonna give myself over to asking God for revival in this case. I'm not gonna eat lunch today. I'm gonna read the Bible instead. That would be spiritual fasting. Every scriptural account of genuine fasting is always linked together with prayer. The two of these go hand in hand like a, like a finger in a glove. Fasting always goes hand in hand with intense season of prayer. And so sometimes people say things like, uh, oh man, it's, it's four o'clock in the afternoon and I forgot to eat today. I don't know who you are, but I've never forgotten to eat, right? <laughs> Ever, not once. Uh, it, it explains it the size that I am. I look like I've never missed a meal and I really haven't. Uh, but uh, it, I've never forgotten to eat. And so sometimes people might say, well, I fasted yesterday on accident. That's not spiritual fasting, right? Spiritual fasting is this. I choose to miss breakfast. I choose to miss lunch because I truly want God more than I want to eat today. I want God to be made real to me in a way that I've missed out on for a really long time because of things in my life. Fasting, spiritual fasting, focus on God and skipping a meal and focusing on the Lord and spending time in prayer will awaken your senses like nothing you've ever experienced in your entire life. You will, you will want to chew your fingers off by the end of the day. Whereas before you might think, well, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, for, for me, I was on a, a period where I'd been fasting for a couple of days and I walked through Sam's Club and they had one of those really big thing of cheese balls. And those disgusting orange things that they give kids I don't want to say that. We probably give them to our kids in Super Church, but um, they're nasty, right? I could smell the cheese balls through the plastic when I walked past. But in that moment, I could have eaten that entire barrel of cheese balls. But in that moment, I said, I choose not to because I, I want God's spirit in my life more than that. I want God to, be, to show himself real to me more than I want to eat right now. I want God more than food. That's spiritual fasting, and I'm telling you this, it will do something for you that you've never experienced before. Now, sometimes people say, well, I'm taking a social media fast. I'm not gonna get on uh, you know, Twitter or Facebook or Instagram uh, for three days while I focus on the Lord. Hey, that's a great thing. It's not a biblical fast, but it's helpful. And sometimes we should take a break from things like that that are holding us back. And, and let me just tell you this, if you find yourself increasingly addicted to social media, you should give it a break, you really should. Let me say this, you find yourself increasingly addicted to, I'm gonna step on some toes here, but I'm gonna say it anyways, 
coffee? Maybe you should take a break. So I just went, oh. It's the sound you'll be making on Monday morning without coffee. Now, here's the thing. Paul says this. I'm not going to allow anything to have power over my body. I'm not going to allow it. And sometimes external factors, even that might be good things, can take control of us to the point where we need to step back and say, hey, I know I normally have two, three, four cups of coffee. I generally only have one cup of coffee. It's about a 24-ounce cup of coffee, but it's only one. Whoever decided that coffee should be four-ounce cups never drank coffee. That's all there is to it. I only have one cup, but it's a big cup. But here's the thing. There are times where I say, I'm not going to have coffee for the next few days because I really want to focus on God. And that would be a fast, and one sense, it wouldn't necessarily be a biblical fast in the fact that it's not dealing with food specifically. But, you know, I've heard other people say, I want to take a TV fast. I'm not going to watch TV for, for a week. That's helpful. Not, not a biblical fast. Biblical fasts always deal with food, and they're generally always connected with intense seasons of prayer. So I just want to define that from the get-go. Uh, four different types of fasts that we find in Scripture. First of all, is a normal fast. Uh, and a normal fast, there's no intake of food uh, for a prescribed period of time, uh, though you might intake uh, liquids. Uh, this is the most common type of fast that we see in Scripture. Uh, you'll eat food, but you'll uh, drink water, uh, drink uh, juices, fruit juices, things along those lines. Uh, for me, if I'm, if I'm fasting for more than a, a 24 to 48-hour period, I'll generally use things like protein shakes and things like that to just kind of keep my uh, calories up and stuff like that. Please note, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not giving you advice on how to fast, anything like that. If you're planning on fasting for more than, uh, I don't know, 24 hours, you should probably talk to a healthcare uh, provider, which I am not. So I'm gonna give that disclaimer here from the get-go. But normal periods of fast can, can last uh, weeks. It can even last months if you chose to because uh, you're choosing not to eat solid food, uh, but you're choosing to, to take only uh, uh, liquids uh, through your diet. Another type of fast we see in the Bible is a partial diet. Uh, this is where you actually exclude certain types of food uh, from your, your diet that you have. Uh, most uh, common one that we see in Scripture of this is the, the Daniel fast. And somebody's made this into a diet, the Daniel diet and stuff like that. I'm not talking about that. But Daniel said, I'm not going to eat of the king's meat because that's what everybody else is doing. I want to show how good God is, and I'm only going to eat vegetables. Now, that's a serious kind of fast, right? Uh, one in which I'm not ready to take up myself, eat vegetables, no meat. That's not my kind of fast. I can't do that, all right? I'd just rather drink water forever. Um, but some people might say, uh, I'm not going to eat bread uh, for a week. And so that's going to be my, my fast that I have. I'm not going to eat that certain type of food or I'm not going to eat meat for the next week and, and things like that. That would be considered a partial fast, biblical fast, 100% on the up and up. Uh, some people, you, they overthink it though. They think, I'm going on a bread fast, but does, does bread include rice? Because rice is kind of a starch. And like, what, here's the thing, don't overthink it. It's not that big of a deal, uh, but just choose from the get-go. Here's what I'm choosing to give up because I truly want a more intense connection with God. Next, uh, we see an absolute fast, uh, which is total abstinence for food and liquids in all forms. Uh, don't do this for any extended period of time for sure. This is no food, no water uh, for ever how long you choose to fast. There's no prescribed time to fast in the Bible. It's not like you, you have to do it in 24-hour periods. You got to do it in a, uh, a seven-day period or anything like that. Fasting could be as simple as missing one meal. Now, if you never eat breakfast anyways, and you say, well, I'm just going to skip breakfast because I always do that, that's not a fast. You're not forgoing anything uh, for the purpose of connecting with God. The ne next type of fast we see in the Bible is a supernatural absolute fast. Do not do this. You will die, okay? Um, we see uh, Moses went without food and water for 40 days. Jesus Christ, after he was baptized, was in the wilderness for 40 days without food and water. Do not try this. You will die, Okay, 
I just want to let you know, we see it in the Bible, but don't ever try it, uh, okay? Uh, so uh, those are the four types of fasts that we see in the Bible. Again, we see fasting connected generally with people's uh, sinful conditions. Uh, when the, the children of Israel were greatly desiring to come back to God, they instituted a fast, a desire for God's presence again. When we take a look at fasting for God's presence, in this case here, the uh, apostles, everybody was asking, why don't the apostles fast? And Jesus says, because I'm with them. They don't need to fast because they have the presence of God with them 24-7 everywhere they go. But there'll be a time when they fast because I'm gonna leave, and when I leave, then they'll fast. Then they'll desire God's presence again. Then they'll desire to be connected to me. When we talk about the presence of God, we know that God is omnipresent. Uh, when we talk about God's omnipresence, that means the, act, uh, the aspect of God's infinity in which he transcends the limitations of space and is present in all places at all times. God is everywhere at all times. That's what the word omnipresence means. Now, again, when we ask collectively as a church, when we ask individually for God's presence with us, we know that God is at all places at all times. So when we are praying for the presence of God in our lives, we're praying for the presence of God in our church, we're not praying that God, because God's not here, Sometimes people use the verse in Matthew chapter 18, where two or three are gathered in his name, there will I be in the midst of them. Here's the thing. First of all, that verse is talking about church discipline, which generally is not the same context that we're talking about there. Secondly, God's presence is with us at all times. We don't need two or three. I can be alone with God and have his presence with me because he's at all places at all times. And know this, when you think that you're sinning and no one sees you, God is present with you and he sees it all. So you can never outrun the presence of God. But when we're talking about fasting for the presence of God, we're talking about fasting for God's manifest presence. This is mean, means that God is obviously present. There are things that are taking place that would be impossible without the presence of God. God's manifest presence is on display when his sovereignty, his timing, his word, his spirit, and his people intersect in a way that's only to be explained by God's supernatural intervention. This would be God's manifest presence. At a church where people are being saved, baptized, discipled, growing in their faith on a regular basis, we can say that that is God's manifest presence showing itself in our church because it doesn't happen at every church in town. Our church will turn six years old this October. The average life expectancy of a, a new church plant in the United States is less than 24 months. Before they hit the two-year two mark, most church plants will fail. And then I think it's a crazy, ridiculous number of like 90% of church plants will fail by year three. Man, we defied the odds. How did it happen? Because we're so smart, because we've got it together. No, heavens no. We're a bunch of idiots trying to figure it all out, right? You're like, speak for yourself. No, I'll speak for you too. <laughs> but what happened here? God's manifest presence his sovereignty, his word, his spirit, his timing, his people, all lined up perfectly for God's glory to be put on display for everyone to see. Every time somebody comes to who we call and they go, oh, what a great church you have here. I say the same thing. Praise God. He's been really good to us. Oh, what an incredible building you have here, right? Smack dab in the middle of town. Man, praise God. I could tell you a story. Uh, you don't have time for it, but I'll tell you a story how God gave us this building and worked out all the details for us to be able to rent this place and call it our home. We're praying that one day God will allow us to buy this building and make it our permanent home here in this city. But man, what is that? That's God's sovereignty. That's God's manifest presence amongst his people. This must be the hunger of our hearts. 
I want God's glory to be on display. I want God to show me something special. I want God to do something in my life that I have not seen before. I want God to move in my life like he's not moving in my neighbor's life. I want God to move in my church in a way that he's not moving in another church. We sometimes pray for God's favor and God's blessing upon this church. And God's shown it again and again and again. But we cannot be content with that. It must be the hunger of our heart. You see, when you and I get in the rut of just showing up to church on Sunday, singing a few songs, filling in some blanks and going home, we have missed out on the craving for the manifest presence of God. Good service. You missed it. We must crave God at work in our lives. We must crave God's moving in our life again. And if you're not there, I would just ask you, would you fast and pray that God would give you a hunger for that? God, would you give me a desire for the things of God? Because I don't really have them right now. God, would you give me a craving for the word? Because I just really got no appetite for it. God, I'd rather sit down and watch Netflix for three hours than to sit in your word for three minutes. Would you change my heart? God will do that if we ask for it, if we beg for it. So why do we fast? Do we fast just because it's what we're supposed to do? Let me just tell you this, doing any religious act without having the right motive attached to it, you're really kind of wasting your time. If you just showed up to church this morning because it's kind of the thing that Christians are supposed to do on Sunday, you're missing the whole point. If you pray at mealtimes just because that's what you've always done, you're missing the point. If you brought your Bible to church today, but you haven't cracked it all week, you're kind of missing the point. If you fast and just skip a meal, and then uh, I'm gonna skip breakfast, and then I'm gonna clear out a large pepperoni pizza at lunchtime, you're missing the point. So we need to understand why we fast. What's the heart behind it? What's the reason behind it? Throughout scripture, we find this. Fasting is a mourning for the lack of God's presence. In Old Testament times, read through Old Testament accounts of fasting, you'll generally find fasting accompanied by fasting, prayer, sackcloth and ashes. They'd actually sit in sackcloth, a rough type of cloth. They'd actually take ashes and put them all over their head as a way of mourning. If you saw some guy sitting in sackcloth and ashes, you didn't have to ask him, hey man, how's your day doing? You just automatically knew. This dude is deeply, deeply grieving something. And can you imagine the people of God heartbroken over the lack of God's presence? It's easy for me to flip on the news, that's why I don't watch the news, to flip on the news and get really angry about what's taking place in our nation. It's really easy for me to get self-righteous about what's happening in our nation. It's really easy for me to get judgmental about what's happening in our nation. But you know what I find in my flesh? It's very difficult for me to pray for our nation and to mourn for our nation. Again, we live in a, a society that is desensitized to sin. That's a lack of God's presence. I truly believe that God is taking his hand of blessing up off of America the way that he has had it in times past. I still believe it's the greatest nation in the world. I still bleed red, white, and blue. I still listen to Lee Greenwood, God bless the USA. I still put my hand over the heart when they, they play the national anthem. Please don't get me wrong, but America's got her share of problems, friend. 
does it bother us as Christians or do we just hope the next election cycle will fix it? Because that's what the nation's waiting for. I have, I have no desire to watch any presidential debates, presidential candidate debates. Not interesting. So you don't care about politics? No. I, I want to know what you believe. Does it match the values that I hold? And that will determine whether or not I do. It's not because you're slick, not because you got a cool website, not because I saw a bumper sticker, not because I'm persuaded because you say all the things that I want you to say, not because you're going to give free college to my kids or free health care to my, uh, my parents. Do you believe what the Bible says? Simple as that. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, I'm not foolish enough to think that the next person in office is going to fix the problems that we have. The problem that America has is a spiritual problem, not a political problem. And it won't be fixed by political means. It'll be fixed by spiritual means. And so when we fast, we're begging God for his presence in our life. Maybe, again, you're backslidden from God That means there was once a time where you were walking with God and close with God and on fire for God, but that fire has slowly faded and you're not as close to God as you used to be. There's a Bible word for that called backslidden. Doesn't mean that you've lost your salvation. It does not mean that God's kicked you out of the family. It doesn't mean that God has disowned you. It just means that you aren't where you used to be. And maybe you need to fast to mourn that loss and a desire to come back to a right relationship with God. Fasting generally is not associated with happy times. In the Bible, we don't see people fasting because everything's going good. Man, God's blessed us. Man, praise God. I'm going to fast for 40 days because God's been so good. No, generally, it's a time of mourning, a time of a desire for a connection. Fasting is for times of aching, yearning, longing. I have a great burning desire to see God move. For Angela and I, we tried for eight years to have another baby after McKeeley was born. There were intense periods of fasting, intense periods of prayer, a longing, a desiring that God would give us another child and it didn't happen in the timetable that we wanted it to. But praise God, in God's time, he chose to, to give, us, give us one final child, the fourth and final. But intense periods of fasting, intense periods of prayer, it's a longing, it's a yearning, it's a desiring. Next, it's a longing to see God's glory again. I'm going to confess to you as, as your pastor, when we moved back to Honolulu to plant who we call a Baptist church, I had in my mind and my heart a desire to plant a church that would make a massive global impact, to gather a group of people that would have such radical, hot, burning faith in God and a desire to live it out that, that our church would literally change the world. Somewhere in that six-year period between then and now, in my own heart, I got content with just making it through each Sunday. Man, Sunday's done. Had some some first-time guests. That was great. Do it again next Sunday. And I lost that fire of lighting this place up. And what stirred that again? A period of fasting and prayer. Not being content with just showing up on Sunday and having a good service and going home. People walk out and they go, Great message, Pastor. Oh, good stuff. Oh, man, loved it today. Praise God. Not content with that. Are we going to change the world? That's what I'm, I want to, to shoot for now. How did that get stirred back up again? Fasting and prayer. And so it's a desire to see God's glory again. These were people who saw Jesus firsthand. They walked and talked with him. They had lunch with Jesus. 
but there would be a period of time where they weren't with Jesus anymore. And Jesus says, then they'll fast. Then they'll remember the times that we had when we were close. And they'll desire to see that glory again. One author said this, when we fast for a meal or a day or a week, we remind ourselves that more than our stomachs long for the pleasure of food, our souls long for the presence of God. So it's a mourning for the lack of God's presence. It's a longing to see God's glory again. It's a desiring to be made complete. You see, oftentimes we go through life feeling like something's missing. I feel like something's off. I can't really put my finger on it. I always ask people, start with your walk with the Lord. Everything in your life flows from a right relationship with God. If your relationship with God's messed up, everything else is gonna be messed up. Start with your relationship with God. And a true desire and longing to be made complete is found in Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.6 says this, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy or vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of this world, not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I love this phrase here, and we are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Have you ever had something in your life that you felt like, when I get this, everything's gonna be good? Whether it's a job, a car, your kids getting into a different school, a pay raise at work, a promotion that you had, a change of address, a home that you wanted, whatever. When I get this, everything will be good. Has anybody ever thought that before? Raise your hand. Have you ever thought that? How many of you got what you wanted and you realized, eh, it's all right, but it's not everything I thought it would be? Raise your hand if that's you. Those of you that didn't raise your hand, I'm just gonna help you with life. That's how life works, okay? You think this next thing is gonna be it, and as soon as I get that, everything's good. But you get that and you realize it wasn't really what you thought it would be. You get that, I, I remember for me, I had, uh, since I, the time I was a kid, uh, I love muscle cars. And man, I, I had always wanted a 65 Mustang Fastback. And um, God blessed our family and when we had our own business for a while. Uh, this is back in like early, late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, and I found a 65 Mustang Fastback. I went to the bank. I got cash, paid for it in cash. It was mine. I, I drove it home. I put it in the garage. I kicked my wife's cars out of the garage. I put that in the garage. <laughs> I began to go out there and I work on it and stuff, man. I love it. Sometimes I go out there and I'd open the door to look at it and go, ooh, yeah, and just shut the door back. And there's times where you just, you need me to go to the store? I'll go to the store this time just so I get to drive my car, right? How long do you think that lasted? Maybe two weeks, three. The first time I went, to, got to go start it and it wouldn't start because the battery was dead. And I realized that this car would forever be a money pit of just money that I'm putting into it that I'll never see again. And then you drive it, and you don't want people to bump it, and so you park farther away from people, and you gotta walk a little ways, and it's drama, and you get an old car like that on the freeway sitting in traffic, you see the uh, temperature gauge just keep going up and going up and going up and going up and going up, and you don't have air conditioning. But if you've ever driven an old car, you know how do you cool down a car that's overheating? Turn on the heater, right? Some of you will never know the joys of this. So sit on the freeway and stuck, stuck in traffic in the middle of July in Hawaii with no AC, with your windows rolled down, baking with the heater on. And you realize, 
This is a terrible car. This could be one of the worst purchases I've ever made in my entire life. <laughs> no lie. I took the car, stuck it on, on the curb, and I, we had an Acura Integra, a 91 Acura Integra that had 216,000 miles on it. That became the car that I drove every day. It was beat to pieces, but it had cold AC, and that's all I cared about. <laughs> and, no lie. That 65 Mustang Fastback that I thought was my dream car sat in the garage for probably months. I finally had to go and unhook the battery to it because it would just be dead the next time I drove it because I didn't drive it at all. And I was like, when are you going to sell that thing? I can't sell that thing. All my hopes and dreams and goals for life are wrapped up in that vehicle. I know, but you hate it and don't want to drive it. I know. I'm a deeply conflicted individual. But guess what? That car didn't complete me. That car just brought me another set of problems that I didn't have before. And that relationship that you're chasing will not complete you. It's only going to bring more problems than what you currently have. That new job that you want so badly comes with its own set of problems too. That change of address, that change of scenery, that starting over that you want to do, it comes with its own set of problems. You will not be complete in the things that this world offers. You will only be complete in Jesus. Once you get him, everything else works itself out. Fast forward 10 years from uh, the time that that car sat in our driveway or in our, our, our garage. Fast forward 10 years later, I'm driving a Ford Windstar minivan that I bought for $400 that had probably 315,000 miles on it. And it was beat to pieces, but you know what? It was paid for, it was ours, God gave it to us, and I was so thankful for it. What changed between those two times? Finding my completeness in Jesus instead of the things of this world. The things of this world will never satisfy. And when we become so full of the garbage of this world, so full of the junk that this world has to offer, sometimes we need to pull over for a second and do a fast. I'm not talking about these weird juice cleanses that people do. You think to yourself like, a juice cleanse, I'm gonna drink juice for 48 hours. How cheap is that, right? It's just juice, right? No, you gotta get the special juice, right? There's a juice store over at the mall. It's like, oh, we'll get you started on your first 24 hours for $50. What? I'll just eat McDonald's instead. It's a lot cheaper. But sometimes we're so full of the things of this world that we need to stop, pull back for a second, and recalibrate. God, would you show me the things in my life that are holding me back from having a healthy appetite for the things of you? Jesus Christ is the only thing that can complete us. Another author said this, fasting makes sense as a discipline in the Christian life only if it's connected with a desire for Christ. Hey, just skipping a meal doesn't do anything for you. But if I'm gonna miss lunch tomorrow because I really want Jesus more than anything else, I'm telling you, those things change your life. Next, fasting is a seeking to be renewed. <clears throat> Jesus is saying here, hey, people don't take a piece of old cloth and sew it onto a new garment. We can't just take this new life that we have in Christ and just kind of patch it up a little bit. No, we need to be renewed. We need to start back at square one with the things that are really important and rebuild. If there's a time in your life where you're closer to Jesus than you are right now, friend, come back to that place again. 
I don't know how to get there. Yes, you do because you've done it before. Whether it's prayer, Bible reading, Christian fellowship, the, the repentance of sin, whatever it is that you need to do to get back there, you gotta do it. Another author said this, why don't we fast as disciples of Jesus because our souls feast on the glory of God? Fasting is an external expression of an internal reality. We're satisfied in him and by him in a way that nothing this world can compare to, not even the basic daily necessity of food. Fasting makes sense as a discipline in the Christian life. It's only connected with a desire for Christ. And when we fast, we say, more than we want our hunger to cease, we want your kingdom to come. Fasting says, I'm willing to miss a meal for a day so that I can see God's glory in my life. You might say, Pastor, I'm, no, I'm closer to God today than I've ever been in my entire life. Great, keep pressing forward. But would you pray and fast for our church then that everyone in our church would come to where you're at? You might say, there's no known sin in my life that I know of. Everything's right with me and God. Good, would you pray for the other brothers and sisters that you have in your church family that they would come to that as well? Final thoughts this morning. How do we prepare for revival again? Fasting, critical. I'd encourage you to take at least one day this week and fast. Not the whole day, just if you've never fasted before. Hey, I'm gonna miss breakfast today or I'm gonna miss lunch today so that I can be closer to God. And again, if you say, I'm gonna miss breakfast tomorrow, but you sleep until 11 so that you won't know that you're hungry, that's not fasting. That's cheating, right? Fasting says, I know I'm going without. And again, if you say, I'm gonna fast tomorrow, so at midnight tonight, I'm gonna eat a large pepperoni pizza and a two liter of Mountain Dew so that I'm not hungry tomorrow morning, you're missing out on the point of fasting. Fasting says, I'm gonna be hungry, and I want that to be a reminder of what I desire more than food. I'm telling you, times are in fasting where all I can think about is having a, a hamburger or, or just, I would, there are times when I fasted, I would kill to have chicken breast, broccoli, and brown rice, and I hate broccoli. Why? Because I say to myself, God, more than I want to eat right now, I want your presence in my life, and I want you to work and move on my behalf. How do we prepare for revival? First of all, confess any known sin. Sin always holds back revival every single time in your own personal life, corporately in the life of our church family. Next, remember the times of God's manifest presence in your life. Look back at those times when God was really moving on your behalf, where you saw God at every single place. Every time you drove down the freeway and you saw a rainbow, you said, God, praise you that you are so good to us. And thank you for your promises that are so real. Instead of like, Eh, a rainbow. There were times where you couldn't wait to read your Bible in the morning. There were times where there wasn't enough room in the margin to write in your Bible anymore because all the things you'd poured out. And now you're just like, ah, I guess I'll flip through the verse of the day on my phone while I'm waiting in line for my coffee. No, remember those times where your spirit burned to be close to God and desire to come back there again. And fasting is one of the things that helps calibrate our life to get us back to those things. Next, pray for God to move again. God has done more at Huicala Baptist Church than I ever thought that he would. It's, I guess he just shows how little my, my brain is or how little my faith was. But what I've seen God do uh, in our church family, the, the people that I've seen saved, the people I've seen baptized, discipled, growing in their faith, making good decisions, raising their kids for Christ, the things that I've seen 
are God's manifest presence. I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. You don't have enough time today for me to tell you the stories. But I can't say, that was awesome. No, no, you know what I say? Do it again. God, do, do it to a greater degree. I want to see more people saved. I want to see more people growing in their faith. I want to see more people making good decisions for Christ. I have no desire to pastor a large church. So lest you think that the end goal of who we call a Baptist church is to be a mega church with 12 campuses uh, and, and we'll meet at the Blaisdell uh, every, every Sunday, not the idea in the closest. I have no desire to pastor a large church. I have a burning desire in my soul to pastor a group of people that are so sold out for Jesus that this city would be different as a result of the people gathered here. That's what I want. And that doesn't take large numbers. It takes big Christians, though. Fast, pray, beg for God to move again. Next, pray for a spirit of revival with others. Start with your first, yourself, then look to others. I pray that the things that God's doing in my life, the things that he's teaching me would catch on with other people. I pray that it would spark something in the lives of other people around me. Next, fast specifically for God's manifest presence in your life and the life of our church family. God, do something big. Do something that we can't fathom. Work in a way that we can't even conceive in our minds right now. Final thought, and this is not a shameless plug, plan to be a part of the revival services. Again, it's not gonna be a big production. We have no band coming in. If you're expecting a big, huge production, you're gonna be greatly disappointed. We have no special speaker. You're just stuck with me. How about that? You know why? We don't need flashy music and we don't need an out-of-town preacher to have revival. We need God's people to be broken over their own sinful condition. We need God's people to not be content with a lack of God's manifest presence in our life who say, God, bring it. We want to see you work. We want to see you move. We want to see you do things that we can't fathom with our own mind. It's a desire to have those things. Every single night of the services, I'm just going to break for you, down for you what's going to happen. We're going to sing a song, one. We're going to pray together as a church family. I'm going to preach a message from the Bible that's so simple, a second grader could apply it. And that's it. Every night, that's all we're going to do. And I truly believe if we come with a heart of expectancy, begging God, expecting God to do great things, we come fasted, we come prayed, expecting God to move, I believe that God will move. I really do. And what happens after that? Revival doesn't stop on Wednesday night. The spirit of revival can continue. The spirit of revival could go on for weeks, months, years. We could see the effects of our revival services take place decades down the road. I don't know. But I do know this, I want to be ready. We can't force God to do anything, but we can be prepared. And I want to encourage you to come prepared, ready for God to move. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you do not know for sure when you die, heaven's your home. Everything today has been talking about what Christians do, but maybe you're not a Christian yet. Fasting for you would do you no good other than just make you hungry. We're connected to God in a way as his children that maybe you're not. And so if you're here today and you're not for sure that heaven's your home when you die, please don't leave without knowing for sure that your faith and trust is in him. Jesus Christ is the only person that can save you. He's the only way to heaven. Become part of his family and then you can find the manifest presence, the presence of God's Holy Spirit inside of you like never before. For those of us that are Christians this week, let's fast and pray specifically for a revival spirit and look forward to next week. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. 
You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.